you're back in the city so quickly. <laughs> yeah, man, this Netflix stuff is insane. It's like an orbit. It's like TV isn't like this orbit and like any moment that something needs to happen, like they need you there because there's a team, because there's oh, editors and there's animators and they need you. And I'm like, guys, have you heard of Slack? Or like, have you heard of like Google Hangouts? Like we can share screens, yeah. but like TV people don't get that. So <laughs> so you do not live in New York, but the headquarters of the company you work for is here. Yes, but more importantly, the show, the Netflix show that I'm working on yeah. currently is like stationed in New York. So is this a secret or is this something you can kind of tell us about? I can tell you a lot about it. Um, Netflix and Vox have been chatting for a while. Um, it's a good chat to have. It's a, right? it's a really good chat to have. At first, it was Netflix and or first it was Vox and PBS. Okay, and we're like, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a cool chat to have. It's like yeah. we'll be on TV, but then it was like Netflix swooped in, and we're like, this is a good chat to have, mm-hmm. and so. Ezra Klein, the founder of Vox, and Joe Posner, my boss, who's the director of our video team, which has only made, you know, web stuff up until now, uh, pitched Netflix. Like, hey, we know how to explain things on the internet with, like, beautiful visuals, and we've garnered, you know, three million subscribers in a few years, and, like, we could probably do that on your platform. And they were like, cool, so we'll take 20 episodes of these 15-minute explainers um, using, like, a th- instead of just pure VO, they want to use, like, authority figures to, to like, anchor the explanation. Okay. So faces people now. Yeah, so they want, like, f- they want, like, it to not just feel like random disembodied voice tells us or explains us X. It's like famous okay. person or expert explains us X, but we still have all the pretty visuals mm-hmm. and stuff. But not like Morgan Freeman narrative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like exactly. that's been done. We need yeah. to do something else. Let's get like someone who's yeah, like is like a diverse group of different experts and stuff. Yeah. So so that's what I've been working on. Um I'm working on it because it's I was part of the original Vox video team and they want to inject a lot of that kind of original like ethos into it um it's not really my forte to be on a big production but i feel like this is from the team you know like i want to contribute to our foray into tv and i want to make sure it feels like vox and and i've been doing vox for a while so this is a big step and it's obviously something you've worked towards uh how long have you been at vox but like how long have you been making videos and just doing travel stuff and explainers like this yeah it it all happened like before I knew it, I, I was like in the middle of it. Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't come, I didn't leave college with the intention of like, I'm gonna make videos for the internet because it didn't, it wasn't really a thing at that point. Um, so I've been at Vox since 2015. So since it was about nine months old. Okay. Um, I always forget that it's not that old. Yeah, it like was born in like, like mid 2014. That's pretty crazy. And when I came out to Washington DC after college, I'd studied international relations. And so I didn't really think about video or film. It was like always a hobby for me. Like I liked cameras and I, yeah. and I really liked animation and stuff, but I got out to DC and I was like, I'm one of like 2 million international relations students who just graduated and the rest of them are way smarter than me. And I'm not going to find a job. And incidentally, I just like recklessly, been married and had a child. 
So that's just like throw that into the mix. Like <laughs> Izzy and I got married. We're just like, let's have a baby. We had a baby. It's and wonderful chaos. It was insane <laughs> chaos. But what that did is it kicked me in the ear and said like, I yeah. have to like provide for these people. And so that's when like video mode, I was like, I'm going to start to leverage my video skills, which weren't really that great. Like I was like a, I was like an enthusiast mm-hmm. at that point. And so, but I found that there was this appetite for like web video. Suddenly it's like everyone, especially in DC where there's not really a competitive market. Mm-hmm. People are like, yeah, come make web video. So I, I took some really crappy jobs making like boring infographics and stuff. And I, but I learned how to do it. And then I was like, whoa, I love this stuff. I love maps. I love doing my international relations thinking, but like in the form of a video and like explaining things to people. And then like Vox was born and I like watched one of their videos and I was like, that is it. Like mm-hmm. I will do anything to work for these people. Cause they, they just get it. They get the aesthetic. They get the kind of conversational way to explain things. Um, so I applied like through the front door, just the typical know, way, the typical way yeah. and got no response. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was pretty sad. Um, and so I waited a few months and then I, and then I created this video resume. It was like an explainer about like what I can do. And it was like an animated thing. And I put, I like poured my soul into it and I actually got like way better at making videos, just working on that thing. Hmm. And it was just for them. And I sent it back and I was like, I like, I, I didn't tell them that I made it for them, but I was like, watch this video resume I made. And they watched it and they're like, all right, come in for an interview. Okay. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of forced my way in the front door. Cause it just, it just, it was one of those moments where I was like, this thing aligns so perfectly with like the way that I think about the world and the way I want to do work. Um, and, and that was the birth of my Vox experience and it's been a wonderful experience so did borders start right after that or did you kind of have to no. make your way towards it yeah it was a uh long journey because when i started at vox i was just there to be an animator mm-hmm. like i was just like the the writers had the good ideas i was just the animator because yeah. i wasn't seen as a journalist yep. um and so i i respected that and i just kind of animated other people's ideas but I was like, I want to take a stab at this. And luckily, Vox was in a startup mode. So it was like everything was malleable. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's job is malleable. Do whatever you want as long as it's good. It was kind of the was yeah. kind of the mantra. So so I started writing my own scripts. And then I started writing my own explainers. And then I pitched them on like, well, guys, what if we leave the office and not just animate stuff, but actually go somewhere? So in twenty at the end of my first year there, I pitched a story in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And I went to Cuba and did this story about like, the internet or the lack of internet in Cuba and how that plays out. And, and that was like the true moment, like being hired at Vox was like a big moment, but like being in the field with my camera in some foreign place, telling these stories was like the true moment where I was like, yep, this is it. Um, and the cool thing was, is like, they, they were like, if this flops, it is 100% on you. Like it is like you will be crucified if this flops. Yeah. If it succeeds, it is 100% you. You will be like, like you will get total validation. And so good odds. Be, because they told me like, it's go prove this. And if it works, you can do more. Mm-hmm. And so once again, I poured my heart into this thing and Cuba thing turned out great. And they're like, cool, do another one. So I, I started doing these kind of documentaries, these mini documentaries, which I kind of dubbed Vox Docs. But it was like a loose brand. It, it was like a loose series. Yeah. Um, and then Borders in twenty, the end of 2016, I was like, I want to make it a proper series. 
and um, borders. You know, I studied my master's degree was in conflict resolution, peace and conflict resolution. I like love conflict <laughs> and like conflict studies and like why people clash. And so borders was like this natural theme that I wanted to kind of explore. So I pitched it and did it. And in 2017, I went to six different borders and made a documentary series about the human outcomes of what happens when we draw these lines mm -hmm. on the map. But it seems like everywhere you went, you were filming. Was that a big change? Like you kind of always had your camera with you. Yeah, that I mean that I had done that in, in previous ones as well. Because um, I think the first time I saw you, you were talking about business cards in Japan. Yeah. Or... So the difference with borders, you're right. The difference with borders is that I was like, I'm not just going to make a curate, like a beautifully manicured documentary that's like 12 minutes and like deep and rigorous i'm going to like spontaneously kind of vlog yeah. like i'm gonna like vlog i'm gonna do what the vloggers do which is like turn the camera and like riff you know on mm -hmm. like what they're thinking or seeing but i'm gonna do it in this voxy way where it's like where it's like there's a reason the, yeah and there's like a bit and there's like a context and there's an explanation yeah and so that's what i started doing in japan mm -hmm. and and started doing dispatches i started calling them which yep. was like nothing to do with borders it's like while i'm it's like my travel log yeah. Like anything goes. It's good to give titles to anything. Totally. Yeah. Uh, but documentaries have existed forever, but vlogs are kind of new, I guess, like within the last five, 10 years, whatever. It, it is interesting to define the difference between the two, but I think you described it pretty well. Vlogs more so turn the camera on the filmmaker itself and kind of anything goes, I mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. And what I, I see vlog as... Um, it's just the clothing over whatever story you want to tell. It's just one format. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it doesn't pretend to be anything. I think what, I think what vlogging has been is kind of lifestyle vlogging. And some of the pioneers of that have, have, have shown a certain way and kind of set the trend. Mm -hmm. But I think what we are going to see, what I want to see at least is people taking the vlogging format of person with camera who has some mission and and take that into a bunch of different objectives My, the, what i want to do with that is take that into rigorous journalism and say guy turns the camera and tells jokes and skateboards around and has fun but he's also secretly like coaxing you into understanding the like macroeconomics of japan's labor market mm -hmm. but we're really talking about vending machines and why are there so many vending machines in japan if you watch the vending machine in japan video which is one of the most successful dispatches. It looks like I'm just dinking around and like in Uniqlo and like playing around with chopsticks. And, but throughout the process, I'm like feeding you your vegetables and I'm like teaching you about all these big macro trends that are like really actually well-researched. Yeah. Like I, I actually spent a lot of time pre-reporting that. I actually talked to an expert. I read a bunch of academic papers yeah. and then I go out and I'm just like, the smart guy who knows how to talk about macroeconomics in Japan. And, but I'm like turning the camera. So I guess what I'm saying is like, Vlogging is a format that I think will start to be applied to a lot of different things. Yeah, maybe instead of just all these vlogs being called vlogs, there'll be different types of vlogs. It'll break up a little bit. Yeah. And it seems like the the crappy vlogs we're talking about are more just documenting things as they happen versus pre-production and thought that yeah. goes into before you just start shooting. And I, I would never say that there's an inherent, like, superiority to to the sophisticated smart blog even though like 
like na- like my wife is a vlogger herself who does lifestyle vlogging about mm-hmm. our family about our yeah. travels and we sometimes she sometimes we scuffle because she's like, oh, you think your format's more sophisticated and like the, the the superior format. And I truly, truly don't. Like it's easy to be snobby and be like, well, I do all this research and like I'm actually teaching people. I don't I don't make that distinction. It's mm-hmm. like these are different expressions that people uh, use to talk about what they want to talk about. And they have an audience and they have a purpose. And mine just happens to be one that is angled as a journalistic purpose, which fulfills a certain thing. And the lifestyle vlog fulfills a certain thing and Casey Neistat's like inspirational like you can be whoever you want to be kind of tone it's like it's more like an inspirational speaker like everyone has their own objective I don't think one's better than the other yes but there is a responsibility that goes with traveling and if you're Logan Paul in Japan I think you're going to make a different type of video if you're in Japan <laughs> like, okay there's responsibility there there are lines definitely like I I'm when I'm you knew talk- I was going to pull that yeah yeah, yeah yeah there, there, there's definitely the extremes where you can take I mean we don't even need to go into it we it's like it's to, so it's so incredibly obvious that like that is people can exploit the format yeah. to do really disgusting disrespectful things especially in the travel space mm-hmm. where it's so easy to diminish or frame in a derogatory way other cultures or things that are foreign and certainly anything that crosses that line is um to me indeed inferior and and reprehensible in certain situations i.e logan paul <laughs> logan paul but but in the mainstream of like people yes, who are just yes, trying to make yes. good content for for their audience and cultivate a community i don't think the sophisticated researched pre-reported vlog is any better mm-hmm. than the lifestyle vlog yeah so about japan that was my first time there recently a couple of months ago was that your first time visiting my first time in japan how amazing was it i loved it I, like <laughs> I, I when i was in japan i was like this gives me hope in humanity. I was like, mm. humans are able to organize in large hundreds of millions of humans in a way that feels so pleasant, so well-designed, so peaceful. Mm-hmm. And it's not just when you're walking around the city, you look at the data of crime, you look at the data of education. I mean, Japan is just like a wonderland. Yeah. And aesthetically, it's just like such a fascinating place. I had so much fun shooting in mm-hmm. Japan because everything the lines in Japan, the designs, the the architecture, the coffee shops, the every anything <laughs> is just like pretty and it's like just inherently pretty. It's like they don't even have to try. Yeah. Yep. I was impacted, I'll definitely be back. Uh, I felt a similar not as you know, powerful feeling when I visited Stockholm and uh, Sweden. Mm-hmm. But we both wait, have you been to Stockholm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and then I was in Iceland and it was like, you know, kind of like American touristy. I kind of escaped that as much as I could. Mm-hmm. But what what was your feeling with Iceland? Because that's like the American travel Mecca right now. Yeah. Iceland is definitely like hashtag trending. Um, it's, it's funny. Just my own like personal, I'm going to pull like the hipster, like the, the, the hipster, like I knew about Iceland before anyone else. Cause I actually <laughs> didn't, I actually hadn't been to Iceland until like a month ago so i'm not the hipster but it was funny in 2010 i was looking for like super cheap tickets because i needed to get to london for something and there was this new thing called iceland express and it was like the stopover and it was right after the financial crisis and the reason why um not to get all voxy on you here but the reason why iceland is such a hub now is because they had the most disastrous crisis in 
in 2008 2009 when the when the global financial crisis happened mm. iceland was hit harder than anywhere in the world the two largest banks completely defaulted and like most people lost like tons of their money wow. um we don't think about it very much because there's like 300,000 people in iceland so it like doesn't even matter but they were like in shambles like if you look at their their economic data it just like crashes anyway all of that is to say they were like, we need to rebuild Iceland. And they did a bunch of policy stuff. But one of them was like, we got to get serious about tourism. Yeah. So in 2010 or whatever, when I was doing this, like Iceland Express was like this first thing. And I like, Iceland, where, where even is Iceland? And we stopped over and it was like crazy. And then we like flew away. Now it's like totally trending and awesome. I was just there a couple of weeks ago and I was actually there to interview. I wasn't there to be a tourist. I was there to interview the prime minister and um, so I didn't actually get to see the island or anything, but certainly it's a it's an amazing example of like beautiful culture and design and urban planning like embedded into this like very unique landscape, minimal landscape. Yeah, it's like nothing yeah. is there. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It is. I mean, it it definitely is like especially with like prices being so cheap now. It's definitely like a perfect place if you're looking for just clear your slate go somewhere crazy. That's the quickest no way reference. to another planet. Honestly. Yeah, it really is. And now with like wow air and stuff, you can get there for like a couple hundred bucks. I swear they're like not making money. It's like the yeah. government funds it. They're just like, keep it coming. Yeah. <laughs> cause the subsidies, cause once you're there yeah. and then the dollar is so weak compared to their like Krona that like your money, like I pay $20 for a bowl of soup. Like mm. you, they just are making so much money off of, off of tourism. Yeah. So it's like, yeah yeah iceland's a great place i am i haven't actually like done the tourism there but it's certainly on my list mm. so india might actually come in but she's been instructed to just be quiet which is totally fine you know it's the craig adams podcast anything goes uh <laughs> but you you mentioned your wife is a full-time youtube yeah right this year so she had been kind of slowly ramping up i'm sure this is like a lot of creators experience this which is like I want to start uploading more often, but I've got all this commercial work that like gets in the way and it takes priority. Mm -hmm. And she was doing that. She was making like brand films and stuff. And this year she's like, I'll never be a weekly person because the stuff is always getting in my way. So this year, like on January 1st, she started a weekly upload and mm -hmm. it's like her standard. She announced it and she's been doing it. And she has this like crazy high standard of like production value. Like it needs to be pretty and it needs to be like cinematic and all this stuff. So it's a ton of work. I mean, as you know, like mm -hmm. if you want these vlogs to like really feel something other than just like connect with the person, like you want them to connect with a place or connect with this music or whatever, you have to put a lot of work into that. And so she's been doing that week in and week out. Mm -hmm. um, is Harris, I-Z-H-A-R-R-I-S. Go check her out. Got to do the plug. Cool. And you guys are getting into the gear and, and have, have you always owned gear or have you just kind of used yeah, Fox so and stuff? Another going back to the reckless chaotic, uh, <laughs> moment when we had a infant and had moved to a very expensive Washington DC, one of our, uh, survival mechanisms while I was like bumbling around, like trying to find a good job was weddings. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, the wedding world weddings, uh, weddings, man. So we delved into the wedding industry in Washington, DC. And I frankly attribute a ton of my shooting fundamentals to weddings, just like the repetition, 
the number of hours you put into into mm-hmm. weddings, the kind of high stakes. You can't. There's no second take of the bride walking down the aisle, etc. So we, yeah, we acquired gear. We were Canon people. We bought our 5D Mark III's. We were like 7D people, and then we bought our 5D Mark III's, and then we got our L glass, and eventually we had like a full kit of like great gear. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've always had gear, and then last year we switched to Sony. We just got one A7S, mm. kind of pared down, got really lighter tripods. That's the typical thing to like acquire gear, 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 and then realize that you don't need it all. And, totally. And like, pull back to what you just need yeah it's been really satisfying because like when you're in the gearhead like addiction mode you kind of don't know where the ceiling is and it's kind of like where does this end and you always feel like you need the next thing and we are finally secure enough i always hated it when i was in that mode when i was in the addiction mode i always hated the kind of like condescending people who are like it's not about gear. Like you just need a little camera and like, that's it. Like I never, like I was always phone like, ads. Like, yeah. You just need a phone. Totally. <laughs> and like, and there's always, and even people who are like really respected, I was like, man, your stuff's really good. And I always hated that they would like be like, Oh, gear doesn't matter. And, um, I'm finally at the point where I truly believe that, mm. but I don't say that to people because it, it doesn't help. Like when you're, when you're telling someone like, don't worry, it's just, it's about the story. It's not about the gear. They don't want to hear that. No one wants to hear that. They need to figure that out on their own. You need to hit that point and then pull back and realize and become another person who knows. Yeah. It's yeah. There's no easy way to learn that. The process is actually the part of the learning. You realize that the big crane or the big, whatever is like actually not adding that much value and that with your tripod and your little camera, you can do a lot of amazing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start to finally look at people who are obsessed with gear and you're like, you'll learn someday, you know, and <laughs> then you feel time. the condescending impulse, but I just don't say it anymore yeah. because I'm just like, I, I don't want that. Yeah. That person. I, I learned that through weddings, but I think traveling and vlogging, traveling, especially like I just wanted as few things as totally. possible. Totally, Traveling so, is, the, I mean, that, that's where the rubber hits the road for me. Yeah. Um, if you look at my gear package from like the first trip I took compared to now, it's just so pared down because when you're running around in a city mm-hmm. or trying to like squeeze into the yak tent of like these, <laughs> these yak herders and freaking the Himalaya, like you don't want like it, it becomes the nemesis to your storytelling yeah. when you have to fuss with stuff. And so simplicity rules. And that's frankly, not just for gear. Like that's becoming the ethos for like my whole travel stick is like they're offering me a DP or they're saying like, you should expand and like get someone to help you out when you're on, you know, like a full crew. And I'm like, no, like that's my worst nightmare. Yeah. I love being able to slip around with my little camera, I look like a tourist and just slip in and out of places, it's like seamless. It's like frictionless storytelling because there's nothing in between you and like what you want to capture. You have the tools, they're robust, mm-hmm. and you just do it. You don't have to yeah. worry too much. So you did the, I'm a filmmaker doing everything uh, at weddings. Uh, you kind of traveled, shot travel docs, and kind of did everything again yourself. Yeah. Is that going to go into the Netflix next phase or are you going to have to become a little specified? So Netflix is forcing me for the first time to take off my like jack of all trades hat and learn to delegate and learn to work with a DP to work. I have an editor. I have a group of animators. There's like an archivalist. There's like a researcher. 
there's all there's a huge hierarchy. Um, I'm only doing one episode of the Netflix thing. Okay. I want to contribute and like, I want to show my support and like be a part of it and learn. But my heart truly lies in, at least for now, I'll probably grow out of this. Things change. Yeah. In five years or something or in two years. I don't know. But I'm eagerly awaiting the day that I can get back to my lean, nimble uh, way of doing things, which is I can animate that map. I can go through the edit. I can choose the music. I can do all that stuff. Um, and that's not the case with Netflix. And it's honestly a really good experience for me to learn. I'm learning a ton from these DPs who are way better than me, who like went to film school, who like have been working as professional DPs for ages. I, it's a great learning experience, and I, I'm really glad I'm having it. But I'm definitely learning that this is not. It's not the time for me to mm-hmm. to start to bring in other people and to specialize. The jack of all trades model has worked so well for me. And and I, I want to do it for a little bit longer before I start to bring on a crew. Yeah, it's good to be self-aware. Um, I feel like people will miss what they don't have. And you, you kind of go back and forth, ebb and flow. I was having this discussion with other wedding filmmakers, and it's a trend that I just see in industries, is that when you get really good at something, it's pretty natural for you to not do that as much. So I shot a lot of weddings. I did wedding film school, and then now I'm not shooting any weddings. I'm taking more of a directing, like, connecting role. Um, And, like, the same thing with wedding filmmakers who start to hire teams and then editors and then become a business owner and stop shooting weddings. Like the natural progression is, is you get better at something you start to direct and not actually do it anymore. So it's good to like know that and kind of pull back if you don't want to. Yeah. And you can feel, I I'm feeling that at least being in a, in like a company situation and even a very kind of horizontal, non-traditional company of Vox, like there's still a structure and there's still a natural progression towards, um, management director, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I am consciously putting on the brakes on that process. Um, I feel like, especially now, there are ways that you could scale and be more ambitious without having to sacrifice having your hands on the tools. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, again, that may change. I may get tired of nudging keyframes around and calling through you know, tons of music to find the right thing. And like, I may want to bring on people who are better at that than me and like, Mm -hmm. and outsource that. But for now, having my hands on all those tools remains the actually a really important part of the end product. I'm, I'm finding myself not able to direct as well as I even, this was like so embarrassing, but like I went into the, I went to my editor who's really good. He's like better than I am. He's like a fantastic editor, but I was like, can I just hop in the edit for like just an hour? Like, yeah. can I just like feel the timeline? Cause yeah. I hadn't touched it. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, totally. He was kind of like, you, you don't do that, but like you can. So I jumped in and like started pl- getting my hands dirty in it and like felt so good. And I like tightened things up that like I knew I needed to tighten up, but I couldn't really communicate cause I didn't feel it when I wasn't didn't have my hands on the controls. And so for me, and this is a, I see this as much as a flaw as like a, as like a blessing, which is like, I have not learned to articulate my vision in a way that the product can actually end up better on the other side. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lost in translation situation when I'm trying to direct that is, I think, it, something I'm not ready to embrace yet. It'll take practice. Yeah, it will. It'll take practice and it'll take me going all in and getting excited about that. And I'm just yep. not there yet. It, it's been hard for me to collaborate and outsource because it hurts when the product isn't as good as you know it could be 
Yeah. But sometimes that's a sacrifice you have to be willing yeah. to make. Totally. And sometimes it's just different. Like sometimes having a lot of hands on like this Netflix thing, it's mm-hmm. going to be better than it would ever be if it was just me. Like 10 times better with all the camera people, all the logistics people. It's just going to be so much better. But it's going to be different than if I had my hands on the on the controls. Mm. And like that's good. That's okay. Like it's it's the brainchild of all these people coming together. And I want to be, I want to get to the point where I can be that kind of team player. I'm just, I'm frankly not there. And I'm, and I need to own up to that and be like, okay, I'm going to do a few more years of, of the solo thing. And I'm excited to, I'm excited to get that out of my system before I progress. So let's talk about the fans, the people watching your videos and leaving comments. It's such a public thing and you can immediately see the feedback right there. Did you jump in and respond to people or did you kind of just observe off to the sidelines? Um, I definitely, I definitely engaged immediately especially with borders um before borders i didn't really have an interaction with my with the people watching my videos mm-hmm. um because it was like under the name of vox and i wasn't really in it as much with borders i pitched it as from the very get-go like this is me wanting to hear from you the audience about where i should go that mm-hmm. was the first borders announcement if you watch the the intro video to the first season and so I immediately was in this posture of like, I'm going to field requests. We've got 6,000 of these responses, which mm-hmm. was just like too many. Um, and, and then I'm going to like respond. And, um, and so that actually informed my entire year was like responding to people, asking for feedback. And it was kind of unharnessed. Like I would ask for like, where should I go next? And I got way too many responses that were like all over the place. Yeah. I'm now learning that like, engagement is most powerful when it's directed and when it's when it's like yeah harnessed towards yeah. a certain end yeah and i didn't really realize that i was kind of just like message me and that's success you know like that's what i want and like i'm now learning like no this community can be really valuable and great if we have like a narrower discussion as opposed to this kind of anything goes um but it's been fantastic like a lot of the dispatch ideas actually were from fans mm-hmm. and like they actually informed the stories and for border season two, I'm actually have some ideas of, of how I'm going to harness the fan appetite for con- for contributing, and like actually use that to tell better stories to actually like channel it into the right kind of stuff. Yeah, because you can't just expect comments and engagement for the sake of comments and engagement. It's all to facilitate a community, and you want them to help each other, but then also contribute some kind of value to the production, whether it's having good stuff rise to the top Mm -hmm. or helping out in other ways. So like a ranking system is, is important, Mm -hmm. especially when there's thousands of comments. Cause I, I've, I've asked for like email submissions and and comments and stuff. And you're right. If you just ask for like the most basic kind of response, you'll just get too many and you can't even read it. And then you feel bad because you just answered or looked at the first hundred when there's a thousand responses. So yeah. Yeah. Learning that I think was, I mean, it was necessary for me to kind of just go in and like get a ton of response immediately just to learn like how unhelpful that, I mean, not unhelpful, (laughs) just how I feel like it's like wasted energy in the sense that like those 6,000 responses, like I go through those periodically. It's almost a year later and I still go through them because I haven't finished them. Mm-hmm. It's like a year later and I'm still like clicking through because I would have never. So like I, I now measure success as like, how did this actually facilitate contribution to the, to the community objective or the theme of this community? 
of why people follow mm-hmm. as opposed to like the sheer numbers. And what's cool about that is it creates a feedback loop, an engagement feedback loop, meaning if you get directed, if you ask very specific questions of your fans, they come to you with very specific helpful answers, then you actually use those answers. What you're signaling to your fans is, oh, I actually listen, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I got 6,000 responses. I don't know what to do with these. You're not giving them any positive reinforcement to be like, I'm listening to you. You're, you're, I, the most I was doing was giving lip service to like, thank you so much for submitting these 6,000 responses. But if you actually use that, those responses and, and incorporate them into what you're doing, suddenly your fans are like, oh, this guy's actually going to respond or actually going to use like my contributions actually valid. And that creates loyalty. That mm-hmm. creates people who are like, this is legit. I want to be in this community yep. because I'm not just an observer. I'm a contributor. And like, to me, that's the end goal of borders is to create a community of people who feel heard and who feel like they're, they're all in on this like fun adventure together. It's like cheesy as that might seem. <laughs> fun adventure. <laughs> Keeping promises produce trust. And then with trust, you get more good stuff. Yeah, trust you, trust moves faster than money. So yeah, man. loyalty moves faster than money. An example, I'll give you an example. So like in the loyalty and trust that I did cultivate over borders, because like as sporadic as it was, there was some really good engagement feedback, like experiences where I actually did use this stuff. And um, now I'm working on Netflix and it's this licensing. You have to license from like Getty Images, just to use one photo. It's $150 yeah. to yep. use this photo for a second. And I was like, what if I just reached out to the to the Borders community? So I did an Instagram post and I was like, hey, if you have photos of women working, which is the intro montage to my video, I just need a, I need a portrait of women working around the world, send it to me. And like immediately I got like an inbox full of like wow. good images. And it was like, if I had been just a kind of non-responsive person all of last year Mm. those people would have been like oh who knows if this guy's actually serious if he's actually going to use my my feedback but because i had positively reinforced that loop then they're more willing to contribute and they feel like they're a part of something yeah so it's 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 a it's a lofty goal and it takes a lot of maintenance and a lot of work but to me an engaged community is like a very very valuable thing to have for a lot of reasons yeah so since I've known you, you've used Instagram more and more. What's that like? You like it? I, I really like Instagram. I think it's of all the platforms, it feels the most seamless. It feels the most, um, it just, yeah, seamless is probably just the best word. It just feels like a, when I want to communicate something or show something, I can do that really quickly. Mm-hmm. It also feels like there is a community that really likes travel images and like really wants to get behind travel that like um, just maybe doesn't exist or exists in a much more dispersed uh, concentration in other platforms. Um, And I think there's also, I don't know the science of the algorithms, but I tend to think I have way more followers on Facebook than I do on Instagram, but I get way more engagement as a ratio and as an absolute number Mm. on, on Instagram. Um, meaning it just seems like the algorithm somehow makes my content appear in front of more people than the Facebook algorithm, which doesn't seem to push stuff out to a lot of people, even if they follow you. So 
I don't know. Facebook just seems cluttered to me. That's the other thing is Instagram is a very minimal thing. You know, you're going to get videos or photos. You're not going to get like an article. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get like some conspiracy, like listicle from Buzzfeed. Like you're going to get photos and videos and like, that's it. Yeah. Um, I like Instagram. Mm -hmm. It's a good platform. It's very story centric. Yeah. I wish their video feature was longer. It's like, guys, get with the program, like videos, 60 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, let's, why don't you guys optimize for video? It's like it's a perfect place to do that. Yeah. Um, I know they're focusing on e-commerce right now. Yeah, that's totally it. I And I predict that that video, video has to come. Like video, at least in the circles that I'm in with like Vox and stuff and their conversations with like executives with all these people, the video is so on everyone's mind on how to harness it the best. And Facebook is thinking about that a lot and kind of not doing it super well and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year instagram gets on a more video centric train i yeah. sure hope so yeah yeah and even youtube is starting to see a little bit of competition from twitch have you paid attention to any twitch stuff i've paid zero attention to twitch stuff okay. like literally like i don't know if i've ever gone to the twitch site i only hear it in passing wow. and i hear people talk about it but i've never actually gone and watched a video on twitch yeah live takes a little bit of uh research into understanding like the application it's still young uh Hmm. but twitch is definitely going to be a youtube already is a youtube competitor Hmm. um i read an article today about facebook doing this weird like patreon type thing where they're gonna start paying creators um people can subscribe to creators on facebook yeah it's like that's a model I think we'll see on everything. Yeah. It's Me- like- Medium started it. Patreon's been doing it, okay. obviously. Yeah. Twitch has Twitch Prime subscriptions. So oh, okay. if you subscribe to a creator, they just get like $6 a month hmm. for as long as you're subscribed. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. It's like a $5 a month thing that you pay. You get some exclusive Patreon-y type like exclusive bonus. Uh, but it was interesting to see, to see Facebook do that. It's interesting to see all these platforms like wriggle and like try to figure out how to harness the appetite for video yeah and i really don't think they're doing a good job i really don't and i'm not just like the guy who's always like pessimistic about the industry like that's not me but i really look at like the facebook watch page and i just am like not impressed i'm like what like this interface could be so much cleaner Mm. and so i just don't know like people are like oh no youtube one day it's gonna come down and i just am like I don't see anyone even close to rivaling just the user experience and the community aspect and the simplicity and the dependability of YouTube. Um, but I hope there is a competitor someday and maybe Twitch is it. I I should probably visit the website before I make these grand predictions. Yeah. Uh, I just love the idea that as soon as you think you've seen all social media platforms or solutions to our problems, you know, three more come next month. So it's, it's an interesting time to be not only a creator, but a video creator. Totally. It's awesome to be a film person right now. I think it really is. And I've noticed that I think going back to that story of going out to DC and starting to feel this appetite for like, Oh, we want videos now. Um, was like the beginning of a swelling wave of like that I'm now writing, and a lot of us are writing because like there's so much appetite for it. And my my theory on this is that like it all comes down to bandwidth on on your cell phone. Like before 2010 yeah. or before 2012 or 13, you couldn't watch videos dependably on mobile. Yeah. 
And as soon as that, as soon as we crossed the threshold where it was actually a viable thing to watch videos and peop- and unlimited data plans were coming out, suddenly it was like, oh no, video is now accessible anywhere and everywhere. Mm-hmm. Floodgates unleashed, marketing money, journalism money, all going towards making video a priority. And uh, yeah, we're just like reaping the reaping the benefits of that trend. Yeah, yep. I tried VR. You know, I've looked into the applications of AR, but I think there's going to be some time left for 2D video. <laughs> like we still got a couple of years, if not a decade. Yeah. Uh, mark my words, someone's going to use this clip in like next year and be like, "This Craig Abs is an idiot." No, man. The moving picture like is such a simple and I don't know. It to me, it's been around. That's the thing. It's like moving picture isn't new. This certain version of it is new, but it's like this video everywhere now. That's the difference. Yeah, anywhere, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more widespread. But in terms of in terms of the moving picture being like the ultimate and most sought after, and like the ultimate format for engaging with media, mm-hmm. um, whether it's TV versus like like whether it's the TV news versus the newspaper or whether it's movies versus novels or whatever like like the moving picture has always been dominant and I don't think that is going to change it, it, and even with the advent of these other things I think the idea of a 2D frame that you can engage with and hear and see and at the same time is just like that is a that's an immortal thing. Yeah, I really, it's, it's really powerful because of that perfect storm of other mediums all working together in layers. Like, yeah. it, video can elicit emotions better than anything else. I, yeah. I would say that. And maybe AR is that next thing, but I, yeah, my prediction is that if it is, it needs to be so advanced. It needs to go so much further and be so much more seamless than it is now in order for it to even compete with mm-hmm. our experience with with simple consumable widespread video. Yeah. But the idea of augmented reality is that it's like a lens into the reality of the internet, this other reality that exists everywhere but not in the physical world yet, but augmented reality ties in so well with live stream because it's just an always on Mm-hmm. always engaging kind of thing more so than this shot and edited pre-produced video mm-hmm. so once things start to move towards like virtual reality and the tech is there i think that's when we're going to see the birth and the real use of live like mm-hmm. it, it's going to be much bigger than it is so right the now. question though with live because we went through the exercise in 2016 facebook came to us at vox and was like Live is everything. I mean, you if you walk through New York City in 2016, you would see millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars worth of advertising painted on It was like big Periscope, Meerkat, yeah. Facebook. Everyone was everyone. just like trying. And Facebook was like doubling down. And they yeah. paid Vox to experiment with Live. Mm-hmm. And and so we all, all the biggest thinkers at Vox got around in a room and were like, what are we going to do with live? And it was right after Buzzfeed did that, like watermelon and the, and the rubber bands and like, when's the rubber man going to break? And, and, um, and so it was like, what is our version of the live video? Like, what can we do? And we brainstormed all these things. And then Joss, Joss Fong, who is the story editor and one of the like founders of the video team at Vox. (laughs) She's like the skeptic. Like she's my, she's my editor. And she just like has whipped me into shape for years. Like taught me how to tell stories. She just turned to us and she's like, why couldn't, all of these just be 
produced videos? Like what makes them live? And that to me is the, is the big question. This is what I want to get your take on, which is like live to me is good, like is warranted in a certain subset of situations, mm-hmm. situations where the live action is happening right now and we want to see it right now or interactions with the with a community where they're going to ask you questions like a QA and a kind mm-hmm. of makes sense because you're what applications on a wider spread level do you think live is going to occupy in order to truncate what we do now which is just go and edit the video and make it look way prettier yeah so this idea of fomo fear missing out totally uh, it's pretty evident in uh hq trivia you know, you have to be there in the moment to win the money, to engage, to be part of that. And I think that says something about live application. Uh, this idea of now our video is starting to disappear after 24 hours. Mm-hmm. People are starting to lose and not care about keeping memories locked forever, always accessible. It's kind of there with the cloud. So that's just going to be like a forethought. Of course, all my data is just there if mm-hmm. I need it. Mm-hmm. But really valuing what we're doing in the moment and how that moment is of higher quality rather than a bunch of moments. I don't like so. I don't know if I'm answering the question, but like HQ trivia is a step in the correct direction as far as live application. I can I can totally see that, and I see what you mean by like it almost just becoming an expectation that you can like you can open something up. And immediately engage with it. And you're not looking for like some sort of recorded Mm -hmm. situation. I think the idea of editing though, editing is to me the crux of the moment. Mm -hmm. How much do people want to be able to take the time to take the piece of content they just shot and manipulate it in some way to enhance it? Mm -hmm. Because we all know that raw, straight up video takes a lot more orchestration and a lot more planning in order for it to be as seamless as it would be if you just put, pulled it up in your Final Cut Pro and edited it down yeah. to get rid of all the stuff no one wants to see. I think the tech and the care of creativity in live is going to see a jump forward. Uh, just people having multiple cameras, switching, easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that's going to get better. Uh, but also imagine if like all of your Borders episodes was were only live for 24 hours. Like what kind of difference would that make to the community? Like would people literally have borders parties where they're like, we have to sit down, hang out and watch this when it's there. And then it's going to go be gone forever. Mm -hmm. Like it just changes. And, and I think makes more of a community, a moment fear missing out. It just, it feels different. So I can see that we could go there. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah. Live man. So I want to end with, what we started with with the netflix uh project is there going to be an opportunity for feedback because netflix is strange you know i feel like people engage on twitter like there's no engagement within the app and it's similar to podcasts like people who want to give me feedback on this episode right here have to go to twitter that's where i ask you Hmm. uh to give me feedback so are you going to be looking for that same type of comments and, and feedback on Instagram and Twitter for Netflix or no? I mean, the short answer is like, no, we've now crossed the threshold into TV land, mm. which is a very different land than the open internet where there is a constant dialogue, um, for better, or for worse, you know, in the comments section. Um, and that's another major consideration for me. Um, 
this realm of making TV is, it's a way higher, I mean, way higher distribution, 100 million subscribers mm -hmm. Netflix has all around the globe. That's insane. So that's a lot of people are going to yeah. see this. So there's a huge benefit. The quality, the budgets, like everything is elevated on a level of like quality and on a level of distribution. Um, but what you sacrifice when that happens is you sacrifice the nimble creative control that comes with open internet, wild west, throw it up type stuff, which even the most manicured stuff on YouTube is that compared to what we're doing. If you saw the workflows and the sizes of these files and just like, it's just like a totally different world. Mm -hmm. um, so no, there is, there is no back and forth. And that is one thing I, I, again, am not ready to sacrifice. I've, be, I've become very, very interested in the dialogue and which is why I'm going to do this thing. I've kind of dipped my toe in the Netflix land, seeing what the deal is. And luckily my wonderful bosses have been like giving me the kind of flexibility to, to dip my toe and then walk away and like go back to my old thing. But yeah, I'm going to go back to, to my old drug borders and <laughs> do it again and uh, do it a little differently this time, but get back to what I love about the open internet, which is a giant conversation with tons and tons of people that I can, I can have in, in almost real time. And uh, yeah, so not, another couple of weeks of, of Netflix and then, and then back to the grind of finding stories around the globe travel to <laughs> well, i wish you the best of luck and if i get i catch wind of you going anywhere i'm just gonna show up on my own and just shoot a hilarious vlog off to the side oh uh, just so we can compare the tones of <laughs> your serious talk to yeah. my stupid vlog well actually so that's the thing is your stupid vlog big air quotes on that because that's literally what i'm trying to debunk um is what i'm trying to emulate more like i'm trying to be I'm trying to develop that appeal of like, oh, I can relate to this guy. And and that's what it, that's what the dispatches were. Mm -hmm. They were like, if you watch the docs, they're somber and they're intense. The dispatches are a little bit more like, I could follow this guy around, you know? Um, so I have a lot to learn from people like you and others who are in this space, like doing interesting work when you have no constraints. Mm -hmm. You have no, you have no responsibility to your community to or to an editor to do anything other than like what you feel up to and i think there's a lot of amazing creative outcomes of that that i watch and i learn from and i emulate and hopefully blend with the craft of journalism which is its own thing and hopefully on the other side comes out this hybrid that is fun and also interesting independent full-time video youtube vloggers are like the cowboys the han solos yeah, if you must you of go. the video industry totally. well thank you so much uh if you have made it this far dude honestly let me know i want to know who listens to my podcast all the way through <laughs> and one thing i'm trying to get is uh highlights so if you are a creator you know how to edit Pick your favorite moment from this and uh, just snip that video and put it on Twitter. Tag me. I'd be happy to share that uh, wherever. Uh, so just let me know. I want to know what your favorite moments are. Little sound bites, quotes. Get creative. But thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for coming through. Great to be here.